Hello everybody and welcome to Motorsport Extra, your fortnightly digest of everything that you need to know from the world of motorsport. As ever, it's Ben Evans and Keith Collentine speaking to you from the Formula 1 Fanatic Global Headquarters. And we've got a lot to discuss this week because it's been a very busy fortnight of racing, Keith. It's been it's been excellent, yeah. And I'm really glad to see that you've made a bit of a recovery from your obvious illness in the closing stages of yesterday's IndyCar race. Um, so let's perhaps press on, uh, lest you look in danger of keeling over again. Yeah, sponsorship in kind from Lemsit would have been very much appreciated about 8 o'clock last night. Well, let's pick up with Formula 1. We're currently in a gap between the European Grand Prix from Baku and the Austrian Grand Prix coming up in a few days' time. Nico Rosberg absolutely dominated the race on the streets of Baku, which... Unfortunately, Keith, wasn't quite as exciting as people had hoped. No, it looked as though we were going to get a very different type of race, certainly um, after Friday practice, which, you know, Lewis Hamilton was absolutely flying around the circuit. Uh, and then we had uh, a very madcap GP2 race, um, which had everybody expecting that we were going to get some really frantic action in the Formula 1 event. Uh, but of course, as you all know what happened, uh, Hamilton messed up in qualifying. Qualifying was certainly very exciting, mainly thanks to Lewis Hamilton having uh, lots of problems during the course of the session and only able to qualify down in 10. Uh, but then we thought we were all set to see him race through the field uh, in the Grand Prix itself and it really didn't happen I mean he picked up some places in the opening stages it was all fairly straightforward passes with DRS stuff and then of course he had his much discussed uh, engine setting problem that he wasn't able to rectify because the team couldn't tell him basically which button to push if ever there was an argument that Formula 1 is possibly a little bit overcomplicated, that w that was it I think my my takeaway from the race was the motorway section of the circuit were, reminded me a little bit of the Sao Paulo IndyCar circuit. And I was thinking back to that magnificent race from a few years ago and just kept being disappointed it wasn't that race. Yeah, it, it really did offer a lot more than it gave. The GP2 races, you know, aside from the craziness, and we'll get onto those in a bit, um, you know, really were exciting. Drivers were slipstreaming each other all the way down there. But with Formula 1, uh, it just seemed to be the case that you know, they, they dragged up to each other and then they got the benefit of DRS, passed very easily. And because we had two consecutive DRS zones and one detection point, once one driver had overtaken the other, they then pulled away completely clear in the DRS zone. So it really just became a race that was entirely about DRS um, and really wasn't terribly satisfying to watch at all. And also, it was a race where, against all expectations, nobody put it in the wall. Uh, I think certainly following the GP2 races, we were... I mean, I, I splashed out big time. I put 10p on Rio Haranto to get into the points. So where do you come down on this one, though? Because, you know, obviously people were expecting drivers to struggle a bit more. And during practice and qualifying, we did see drivers having a lot of problems. It was clearly a, a tricky, challenging circuit, fast, narrow in places, not much runoff. You know, for a new circuit, a lot of the things that we look at, a, a lot a look, look for, uh, quite a lot of challenge. In the race, we didn't see that. Now, do you come down on the, you know, this is because the drivers are the very best in the world. And when game day comes, they bring out their very best. Or are you more towards the end of it's because because they're nursing the tyres so much, looking after the car so much, they're not pushing flat out and not making the kind of mistakes that, that we might otherwise see. I think it's a bit of both. I think if you're at Formula 1 level, you know on a new circuit in practice to push up to the limit. You know, if we go back a decade, how many times did Michael Schumacher prang the car on a Friday or Saturday in free practice, particularly at the start of the season? I think it was 2003 in Australia, he had a barrel roll because he was right on the limit and then didn't put a wheel wrong the rest of the year pretty much. And so it's no surprise to see the drivers finding the wall during free practice at the same time. The regulations are such that you don't see those retirements so much in Formula 1 anymore because the drivers that aren't 
able to go at 100 percent the whole time yeah I, I do think that is part of it i probably lean a little bit more towards the second uh, part of that explanation i think the other big factor as to why baku didn't thrill in the way we hoped it might was this looked like a circuit that it was custom built for mercedes they had a huge advantage there of the kind of which we haven't seen since the first race of last season and, and after a couple of races where uh, you know on the slower circuits red bull were getting closer they out qualified them in monaco and raced very strongly and then we went to canada where it was ferrari's turn and they had their new turbo upgrade and they were very close to mercedes and, and that was very encouraging too um this was a complete reversal and, and mercedes rivals were really quite weak in baku and they knew they were going to be weak beforehand. We, I think last time we were discussing on the podcast, Red Bull was saying they knew they were going to give away a second on the straights to Mercedes. And it was it was a pity. I mean, I generally quite like the circuit. It's the first new circuit in Formula 1 for quite a while that's made me think, I might actually buy the computer game because I fancy driving a few laps of that. It certainly looked really, really challenging. Uh, maybe even asking a little bit too much in terms of safety in some places. I, I was surprised one or two bits of the track got clearance, particularly that pit lane entrance where they just seem to have rebuilt the very problem that Interlagos has, has spent huge amounts of money on fixing recently. I, I was surprising isn't really the word but questionable that that got signed off in the way it was i wouldn't be surprised if it's changed when the the drivers go back next year it's a very 2010s f1 venue in that clearly everything that formula one had asked for the government as bayan made sure that it happened the well done baku signs on some of the barriers well draw your own conclusions but it it was a real transition race from what Formula 1 used to be to where I think it, it would like and aspire to be in the future, which is cities giving themselves over totally to hosting a Grand Prix. Almost on the Formula E model, you would have to say. Uh, maybe that's a little bit more to what they're looking for. And I don't think you'll find an awful lot of cities you know, in Europe, for example, are willing to accompany that. I check myself because I've said in Europe and we're talking about the European Grand Prix. Obviously, depending on which pedantic geographic definition you used, Azerbaijan may or may not be part of Europe. Um, but I, I do think, yeah, you might struggle to, to hold that kind of race. My only other takeaway from the weekend was, and I don't know if anybody else spotted this, as the cars came into the city section, there was a balcony where a family came out every lap and started waving a very large Azeri flag. And the deal that must have been done to allow that, because I've heard many, many stories of companies that have hired balconies, particularly at Monaco, they've put a banner over and somebody from FOM has been over in no time at all. And it was just a, something that I really noticed because it was happening every single lap. Yeah, and also I think when the cars took the chequered flag, um, they were also waving the local flag along with the uh, with the course flags. I'm not aware that that's something that happens elsewhere. I could be wrong. Uh, do tweet in and let me know if I am. I can't think I've ever seen that before, but I could just be being incredibly silly. Um, but the other um, big one for me was Sergio Perez up on the podium for the second time in three races and completely on merit. And you would have to say that was slightly beneath what the Force India was capable of. That was a car that could have finished second on that day. What's been really interesting as well is that for years we've said Nico Hülkenberg of the Force India has got podium potential. He is going to smash it. He's going to have a standout drive. And instead it's Perez who after that fairly disastrous season at McLaren has made, who had maybe been written off, certainly by me, is the driver is stepping up and delivering the results. Yeah, I mean, Perez now I think has at least half a dozen podiums. Uh, and you look at the teams he's driven for, Force India, Sauber and McLaren. McLaren's the only one he didn't get a podium with, which is uh, which is surprising. Um, but, you know, it, 
I think it's quite heartening to see Force India doing well because uh, they're an independent team, they're a customer team, um, and they've, they've taken advantage of this period of stability in the regulations. They've come up with a really neat, effective little chassis, um, and they're using it brilliantly. Um, I think Nico Hulkenberg, wow, what a disappointment that weekend was for him. And it all went wrong in Q2 um, with the spin uh, not making it through into Q3. Um, and you would have to say, you know, in Monaco, he was unlucky not to get on the podium. He really should have been on that day. But uh, Baku, the opportunity was there and he absolutely blew it. And also with words starting to come through that Kimi Raikkonen's seat isn't necessarily secure, certainly for, for drivers like Sergio Perez, for Nico Hülkenberg, this is the chance to throw headwear into a circular object. Yeah, the opportunity may potentially be there for, for someone to step into that Ferrari. You'd have to say, on the strength of Raikkonen's performances so far this year, that probably really should be the case for next year. Um, Ferrari, rumour has it, uh, would like to have uh, Ricardo in that seat, but Red Bull uh, have pretty much got him sewn up, I believe, for next season. Well, next weekend we've got the Austrian Grand Prix to look forward to at the Red Bull ring, and... You will probably know the answer to this better than I do, but I believe that Zeltweg is the only town that has hosted Formula One racing on three different circuits. Three different circuits? Well, one and a half, two and a half different circuits. Yeah, because obviously they definitely had the Zeltweg airfield, uh, yeah. which held the race in 64, um, and then they moved it to the Osterreich ring, which has now had three different names. Um, and maybe about to undergo some more changes as well because they've completely resurfaced the track for this year uh, and once again gone for the, you know, it will be very much bump-free. I don't remember it being a particularly bumpy circuit to begin with, um, but once again, a very low uh, abrasion, which is something we've seen quite a lot of in uh, recent uh, races and, and the problems that that can cause from the point of view of getting the tyres uh, grippy enough but the other thing they're doing is um, doing a bit of rebuilding work around turn one and they're being really cagey about this I have asked them you know because we've seen pictures appear online uh, they posted some pictures on their Facebook account of them building uh, a new chicane after the first corner and then leading through onto the old loop of track and obviously this has got geeks like myself very excited because we'd all like to see um, more of the old Osterreich ring being used and a bit more of the of the track being opened up no indication yet as to exactly what they're doing there uh, maybe we'll get an announcement over the Grand Prix weekend but if they are going to um, bring that old loop into action that would be fantastic. Certainly the original turn one and turn two for the Austro ring is still there the rest of the circuit unfortunately now is is gone it's part of the runoff area but that that original section is still there you I visited there last July with the GT Open and you could still drive up onto that section of the circuit so it's very it's in repair I wouldn't be surprised they did extend the track because it is unusually for Formula One circuit, a very short circuit, actually, and a very straightforward layout. It is. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I'd be a bit disappointed if they did, because for me, it's one of the attractions of this track is it's along with Monza it's maybe one of the closer things that you get to like an oval race on Formula 1 where the lap time is so low that uh, a small error by a driver in qualifying can make a huge difference and that can really mix the grid up um, but in terms of uh, the track configuration uh, I mean the cynical take would be um, that perhaps Red Bull are not so happy uh, with having their own race being held on a track which so obviously does not play to their chassis strengths and they're just trying to insert seven or eight more chicanes to slow things down I don't imagine for one second that's what they're actually doing but it would be quite funny if it turned out that way. Well, it's well worth a visit to the Red Bull Ring if you've never been it. It's the most magnificent facility, and Red Bull has spent a lot of money on getting the circuit back up to Formula 1 specification. So who, who do we think is going to win this weekend? 
I mean, once again, you have to say uh, Mercedes are going to be very, very tough to beat. The good news for their rivals is uh, Pirelli are bringing the softest compound tyre again, the ultra soft, and um, Mercedes, sorry, uh, Red Bull and Ferrari have done a bit better with that tyre uh, in terms of cutting the gap to Mercedes. So I don't envisage uh, certainly anything like a Baku-style uh, margin of superiority for Mercedes you've always got to say that it's going to be between those two but uh, Ferrari with its with its upgraded turbo I think Vettel could give them a headache in qualifying and don't forget in 2014 uh, the Mercedes drivers completely screwed up qualifying and allowed Williams through onto the front row Williams didn't punish them on that occasion but if they opened the door for Ferrari or Red Bull uh, we could see an interesting race it is another track where it's actually quite tricky to overtake on we'll look forward to that also with action this weekend it is the GP2 championship and they were in action in Baku and uh, for everything that the Grand Prix didn't deliver, the, the GP2 race probably did. Antonio Giovinazzi won both races. That was probably about the only straightforward thing of the weekend. Yeah, these were not races that you would put down, you know, in the great canon of superb moments in motor racing history, but they were certainly, you know, lively and dramatic. Um, I think, I think one of the sort of backdrops to this was uh, obviously we were going to have a lot of incidents for GP2 around Baku and the GP2 um, stewards seemed very unwilling to use the virtual safety car after what happened in Monaco uh, and obviously in, in the earlier podcast we went into the details there of the differences between the, v, the VSC in F1 and in GP2 and why that kind of handed Markolov a somewhat undeserved win uh, in Monaco so they didn't want a repeat of that and that was a problem in Baku because here's a really big long circuit where they really could have done with the virtual safety car but they never used it once they used the safety car instead uh, and the big big run up towards the safety car restart line that was flat out was an area which was causing the GP2 race leader a lot of problems particularly in race 2 uh, for Nobuharu Matsushita who ended up getting a ban uh, for the upcoming race weekend in Austria which is extremely rare I mean you very rarely see drivers getting banned uh, basically because he, uh, he was went too soon to and slammed on the brakes I was going to say because he was living up to the final syllable of his name yeah pretty much in, certainly in the opinion of several of the other drivers in terms of the championship it's quite bizarre because nobody's got a run together so far so it's Giovinazzi who won both races in Baku but Prat and his best result have been 11th place in Monaco Markov is leading the standings he's only been on the podium once and that was because of the virtual safety car in Monaco Nato retired from both races in Baku he's second in the standings Pierre Gasly couldn't win a one car race at the moment it, it's a wide open championship but you have to say nobody is consistently impressing so far. No, uh, there's a lot of racing still to go in GP2. It, it's, it's that funny part of the season where some championships are halfway through. GP2 is only three events in, um, so a lot more to be done there. Um, but in terms of the racing in Baku, I mean, for me, the absolute highlight of the entire weekend in Baku was the closing laps of the second GP2 race where we had uh, the two Prema drivers, um, Gasly, as you say, uh, leading and Giovinazzi closing him in. Um, and Giovinazzi passing him, even though his DRS was broken, uh, down at turn one um, superb stuff by him and yeah, really that should just be such a massive sign for everybody involved in Formula 1 that you get the best racing when the, when the DRS doesn't work Talking of big single seaters we had yesterday evening as we record on Monday the IndyCar Grand Prix of Road America it was a second victory in succession from Will Power and it was very much a race of two segments the first 80% of the race, Will Power was in comfortable command over Tony Canaan, Graham Rahal and Simon Pagano for disputing second position. Then we had a late safety car period after the suspension collapsed on Connor Daly's car. 
and then all bets were off and Will Power having kept some push to pass in reserve used them on the last lap and that kept Tony Kanaan at bay and did he need them as well because as Kanaan said afterwards you know he was really unhappy that the safety car period went on as long as it did uh, and we were saying to each other uh, during the advert breaks in the commentary box this is the thing with IndyCar safety car periods you, you figure out how long it should take them and then you add 100% because they just drag on interminably um, had they got that race restarted a bit sooner I mean we had a very very close finish less than half of a second between uh, Power and Kanaan pressing down on him um, Kanan, I think, would have had a very decent chance, even with the push-to-pass situation being as it was, of getting ahead of power because he was taking huge amounts of time out of him um, because he was on a fresh set of the softest available tyres, and obviously power was on the harder tyres. Um, but, I mean, it was great to see such an exciting end to a race that a lot of people wanted to see for a long time and which the community of Elkhart Lake turned out in force to support the wider IndyCar fans. And they had guys driving down from Saskatchewan in Canada to watch that race. That's how popular that race has been and fantastic to see that it's going to be back again next year. It's exactly the kind of event IndyCar need. I think the other thing that was really striking for me about the weekend, it's one of the reasons why I love the championship so much, is that you get so many different types of racing through the year in IndyCar. You've got the short ovals, that's one discipline. You've got the super speedways, that's another discipline. You've got the street courses, and then you've got a circuit like Road America. And it was almost a Formula One-style race in comparison to some of the street fighting that we'd seen previously in Detroit. Yeah, I'll be it without DRS, so it gets the vote from me uh, every time. There was great racing throughout the field. I mean, it was a little bit uh, follow my leader you know, as you expect with this kind of race and a track that long, and we said it right at the top of the show that it was kind of going to be that way. Um, but we had, yeah, loads of action for it. And of course, um, very interesting in terms of the championship as well, because uh, we did see Dixon uh, go out early on. Obviously, he went in uh, second in the, ch- in the championship standings. Uh, but then that electrical problem for Pagano as well, which robbed him of power at the end and dropped him uh, out of the top 10. I think he finished 13th uh, in the end. Um, that took what was looking like an almost done and dusted championship situation uh, and turned it around and made things look rather interesting uh, for the remaining races of the year. And of course, because we've got the the Firestone 600 in Texas to be completed on the 27th of August, there's a lot more racing to come this year than perhaps had originally been being thought. There's another race with points to award. It's going to be a very uh, hectic end to the season. Um, just actually one thing I wanted to quickly pick up on that we didn't mention in the commentary was what happened to the Foyt drivers because both of them managed to get pit lane speeding penalties, quite a lot of them. Um, Hawksworth, though, uh, still managed to get his car home in front of Pagano. He came up to 11th, which is definitely one of his better finishes of the year. He had one pit lane speeding penalty. Sato managed to have two, so I don't know where they've put the button for the speed limiter uh, on the Foyt cars, but they've certainly made life difficult for them and just picking up on the front it racing a couple of brilliant races from the Indy Lights as well oh the Indy Lights was absolutely smashing I don't think we've run the highlights of it yet on BT Sport we may have done by the time uh, that we put this podcast out there if you don't want to know the results then um, move on uh, a a few seconds on your uh, podcast playing device of choice Um, but Dean Stoneman has been uh, taking the fight to Ed Jones in the championship and the pair of them had an absolutely brilliant scrap in the Sunday morning race um, down through turns uh, five, six, and seven. Uh, Jones got Stoneman with basically all four wheels on wet grass, and Stoneman still made the pass stick. Absolutely immense stuff. Uh, unfortunately, Jones was held up slightly at the exit of the corner, was hit by his teammate Felix Sorales, uh, and then Stoneman picked up a puncture as well, uh, which compromised his end to the race. Um, so that race was won by uh, Santiago Arusha. The first.
first race, Zach Veach dominated and Stoneman came in second despite having a five-second time penalty. Um, so both races were really, really exciting and it has really closed the championship up as well between uh, Jones, Stoneman and Arusha, the top three. Um, so, and again, they're following the IndyCar around most of the upcoming tracks. They're going to be at Iowa the next IndyCar round. Uh, don't miss any of that stuff. Some of the best racing. We also had some brilliant racing in Paul Ricard over the weekend with the Formula V8 3.5 championship. Igor Yurichov and Louis Delatraz scoring the wins. And whilst the the numbers in the field have been somewhat slender for the championship this year, the racing has actually been the best, for my money, since 2012. I know, we've said this before. I was gloomy in the off-season about what was going to happen with, uh, with V8. Um, and I do think sometimes one thing that commentating on these races has shown me is it, it makes you more positively disposed towards the championships you're talking about. But even taking that into account, I've been surprised how good the racing has been. And we had two really good races, but good in different ways. In, in the first race, um, time management over the full length of a very hot race at Paul Ricard was clearly a big factor um, race two was much more of a strategy race but it, it still had uh, you know some good wheel-to-wheel dices and, and a quite a tense end uh, as well with uh, with Delatraz taking over the lead and being chased down by Nassani it makes for a very interesting championship position as well so it's Tom Dillman who maintains lead of the championship for the first time this season in Paul Ricard he wasn't on the podium and in fact never looked likely to be on the podium either no it was a really indifferent weekend for Dillman and whether or not that's going to continue into Silverstone, we will find out in due course. But there's still a lot of drivers snap it, snapping at his heels. But again, it's relatively early stage in the championship. We still just need somebody to to go on go on a run and see if they can build that that points buffer. Their next in action on the 23rd and 24th of July on the Silverstone Grand Prix circuit, alongside the International GT Open and Euro Formula Open. Really recommend going along to that meeting. It's going to be pocket money to get in on the gate and some, some great action to look forward to. And the Silverstone races in Formula Renault 3.5, as it was last year, uh, were absolutely brilliant. That uh, that wheel-to-wheel dice between Oliver Rowland and Mathieu Vaxivier uh, was uh, absolutely spellbinding stuff. It was a frantic weekend of racing because there was also the DTM and the European Formula 3 Championship at the Norris Wing. Eduardo Mortara and Nico Muller scored victories in the DTM and neither race was particularly exciting particularly Sunday was a bit processional yeah it, on, on the on Saturday I think Ekstrom got my award for comedy piece of driving of the weekend when he managed to take himself and the the two race leaders uh, out with a not especially well queued up uh, attempted overtaking move on Christian Vitoris uh, sorry on Robert Wickens uh, and then ended up skidding into uh, Christian Vitoris I'd love that, that that was sabotage and that somebody was playing Wolfgang Ulrich or something over the team radio and that, that's what caused the mistake one Audi taking out two Mercedes it's not as if we haven't seen that before but uh, I think you might be giving Ekstrom too much credit with that theory uh, of course anything that Matthias Ekstrom can do Pedro Piquet can do even better he got caught out in race three of the, the Formula 3 championship where as Ryan Teveter was slowing they were behind the safety car at this point Piquet going a little bit too hot he went flying and clattered into Nico Kari yeah, not the first time those two, uh, PK and Tivita, have glided this year, but uh, this time very much PK's fault, and the stewards actually gave him a penalty point uh, on his license for that one, and uh, Mackie had to be taken off to hospital uh, after Nico that. Nico Kari. Sorry, Kari, my, my mistake. Yeah, he got uh, absolutely clattered by by Pedro PK. In terms of who won the races, Antoine Hubert scored one victory, Lance Stroll took two. And it's starting to look like a very solid championship challenge from Lance Stroll, the, the Prima Power Team driver, P2 
picking up where Felix Rosenquist left off last season. And looking back over the last six races, Stroll has finished second twice. He's won four of them. Yeah, and it was looking good for him uh, once it was announced that Callum Eilert had to have an engine change because they have, I think, probably the toughest engine change penalties in any category in Formula 3. Uh, when you change an engine, you get not one 10 place grid penalty, but three in a row. Uh, so that meant he would start all three of last weekend's racing outside of the top 10. Notwithstanding that, he battled his way up into third place in the first race and then skidded into Joel Eriksson, took him out and handed the win to Stroll. So just when it looked as though Eilert was going to make a fantastic <laughs> bounce back from this setback it didn't work out that way and then of course race three had to start behind uh, the safety car because there was a problem with the start lights uh, and that further inhibited his ability to make up ground i think the other interesting point for me is the dominance once more of the prima power team and talking to some team principals who may have gone and raced elsewhere the dominance of that squad was a concern for them and it's going to be very interesting if at some point in the season the stewards don't absolutely take apart Lance Stroll's car with a fine tooth comb we have seen that happen before in other championships um, I think the way it's impacting most on the championship so far though is, is is in the depression in driver numbers we've seen you know this this grid has shrunk by I think more than a third since last year so uh, yeah that's that is going to be a concern it's not as if Prima aren't beatable they have been beaten quite a lot earlier this year but that uh, that run that Stroll is in now is looking pretty formidable and then just to bring the weekend's action to a close, we had the World Touring Car Championship in Portugal. Tom Coronel and Thiago Monteiro scored victories with once more the, the the ballast of the World Touring Car Championship delivering home wins. Yeah, although you have to say um, Honda did have a bit more weight on their car as far as uh, Thiago Monteiro's car was concerned. But it definitely does seem like a championship where this constant filling around with the ballast is swinging the results one way or another. And we see too much of this in touring cars. We see too much of it in the DTM as well. And frankly, I find it an enormous turnoff. Having said that, um, I absolutely uh, love seeing the cars in action on the Villarreal track. It's another one of the ones where it doesn't necessarily produce great racing, but it's tight, it's narrow, it's fast. Uh, it's like Baku, but with more of an old school feel. And obviously, it's, you know, it's been used for decades. Um, a really fantastic layout. Well, let's just pick up on that because I tend to subscribe to that. You have got lots of fiddling with the cars throughout the course here in the British Touring Car Championship to try and keep the title fight as wide as open going to the final round of the year. You have much to say in the World Touring Car Championship and in the DTM, particularly when you overlay team orders with that. And, and I agree, it, it makes some of the mid-season racing almost irrelevant other than you see it giving drivers who wouldn't be winning on merit the chance to succeed, get the manufacturer in the press, but it it does detract from the purity of the racing. Yeah, I'm not sure if, I mean, yeah, purity, you could say that, but for me, it, it just makes it hard to follow what's going on. I wonder, you know, who's got a fast car, who's quick, who's doing well. You can't appreciate if a driver has succeeded against the odds and, you know, in a slightly inferior car, managed to beat a quicker rival. Um, it, it, it doesn't tell a story to me, and it does feel a little bit like, like you say, a bit of a sop to the manufacturers because they don't want to be seen not winning. Exactly, and in the British Touring Car Championship this year, you had at Alton Park last time out, the Subaru going extremely well. On merit, that car at the first round of the year got out-qualified by somebody driving in from the entrance gate. And it just makes you sort of think, well, it's great the car's being developed, it's great to see it at the front, but sometimes in motorsport, 
you, you do want to see the, the quickest guys being able to succeed consistently. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, there are obviously upsides to it. And in the case of the British Troy and Char Championship, the payoff you get is a fantastically healthy grid uh, and lots of really, really close wheel-to-wheel racing. And uh, you can't argue, certainly, with the crowd figures as far as the British Touring Car Championship is concerned. I mean, they get more, they get more spectators than some uh, F1 races did, certainly the last F1 race. Well, whether or not it's going to be the British Touring Car Championship going forward remains to be seen because unless you've been living under a rock, you'll probably be aware that the referendum on the membership of the European Union in the United Kingdom last week resulted in something of a shock leave vote. Now, to say that we don't know the impact that it's going to have on motorsport would be a slight understatement, mainly because the, the leads of the country haven't got the first idea what the impact's going to be on the rest of the country. However, if the United Kingdom goes ahead and leaves the European Union, there are likely to be some ramifications for the motorsport industry. Well, like you say, the, the scale of this is yet to be fully understood. Um, but there are a lot of British-based motor racing teams, and including the majority of Formula One teams, who spend a lot of money uh, in foreign countries. And you know, one in- inevitable and obvious way it could have an effect is uh, the consequences for the currency, which is something that is already being felt. Um, so it could have uh, ramifications there. Uh, and of course, the other one is uh, the ease of movement of travel, both in terms of getting people out to other countries, to, or particularly other EU countries, uh, to race. And then also when it comes to hiring staff, um, and we've seen you know, a lot of top uh, engineering and design staff come from other countries uh, to work for F1 teams and all the rest of it. Um, and that could also be uh, affected. And it's not as if you know, we, we often maybe pat ourselves on the back and talk about how strong the British motor racing industry is, but it's not as if uh, it's the only place that you can set up uh, a racing team and go racing. And uh, a lot of those rivals are uh, in Europe. So that's potentially something to be aware of. But as you say, um, all bets are off, really, in terms of where this leads us. I mean, the only parallel I can think of is that a number of racing teams in southern Europe are based in Lugano, just over the border from Italy, rather than Italy itself, for, for various tax reasons. And it would be a blink of an eye decision for a Formula 1 team, if the numbers stacked up, to move to northern France or to relocate wherever they needed to. Uh, even if that meant moving a large number of staff as well. And that would be easier for some teams than others. I mean, we have we have teams that are split across multiple bases. You've got Renault uh, with their chassis operation uh, in uh, Oxfordshire and their uh, Renault, uh, their engine operation in Viry Chatillon in France. You've got Toro Rosso, who've got um, an aerodynamic facility in Bista, but obviously the team is the former Minardi factory in Faenza in Italy. Um, yeah, when, you, when you've got team structures like that, it would become a lot easier for them. And of course, the other more pertinent question and again, we, we don't know for certain if Brexit is going to happen. Or what it will entail. Or what, what it will involve. But what we do know is that Sauber and Force India, and Force India a British team, have currently got an ongoing court case with through the European courts. Yeah, I don't think that it would have any effect on, um, you know, whether that's going to go ahead because of course Formula 1 still races within the European Union so in that case what Britain does and Force India being based in Britain um, is irrelevant I mean Sauber are based in Switzerland and that's not part of the European Union Um, but what was interesting to me is uh, earlier today uh, Bernie Eccleston's been given quotes saying that uh, he might reform uh, Formula 1's prize money structure into something uh, resembling what the Premier League has and the Premier League has uh, a not completely equitable but far more equitable distribution of its revenues um, than Formula One does. Um, That's interesting obviously 
absolutely anything that Bernie Eccleston says you take with a whopping pinch of salt. And particularly in this context, I mean, we're four years away from new commercial agreements coming into force in Formula One. So what we're talking about won't happen for a long time anyway. Um, and the fact that he's basically taken the words of some of his strongest critics and adopted them as his own, that's a fairly standard Eccleston tactic. Um, it, what I'm basically saying is in no way, really, am I convinced that that's something that's ever likely to happen. Yeah, it would involve too many people who get a lot of money now having to give their money away to other people, and that feels like it's going to be slightly unlikely. Well, this weekend, of course, we've got the, the Austrian Grand Prix. We've got GP2 and GP3 supporting it. We have also got the season finale for the FIA Formula E Championship, and it looks like we're going to have a, a shootout between Lucas Degrassi and Sebastian Buemi. Sebastian Buemi coming into this weekend hot on the heels of heartbreak at Le Mans, and also with memories of spinning away the championship in the final race of the season last year. Yeah, and he arrives also as you know the driver who really should be leading this championship by a lot more, arguably should even have the championship bought and paid for, um, because at the beginning of the season particularly, uh, Renault's Edam's car was clearly uh, the quickest thing out there. Um, but he had a lot of slip-ups in qualifying, sometimes exacerbated by technical problems, uh, and sometimes he bounced back from them with you know really impressive drives through the field. But even so, you're looking at his points tally and thinking it should be a little bit higher than that. He, I think, even though he's a point behind Degrassi, he probably goes into this uh, round as the favourite because you know he he's got that performance advantage. Um, there's two races, lots and lots of points to be dished out. Um, I would definitely tip uh, Buemi to take the title, but. Um, Formula E races are nothing if not unpredictable. Yeah, and it, it's slightly odd because the, the E-Dams team are essentially the Championship Works team going up against everybody else because they are bankrolled by Renault, who, who produce the drivetrain and, and various other components on the car. And Buemi should have won the championship last year. The, the way he spun it away was slightly inexplicable. And he, he's really got to deliver this year. The, the Battersea Park circuit, as we know, notoriously tricky some could say unsuited really for racing very very narrow uh, and last year we we got probably better races than we expected but helped somewhat by well-timed safety cars yeah i i think uh, i would go along with that it's uh, obviously also the other thing i have to say is the last time they're going to race on this track because uh, of reasons that we've covered uh, previously it's not going to be going back uh, to london and we don't really have a very good read on where at all they're going to go next year the other thing that caught my eye um, on the Formula E side of things recently was um, Lucas Degrassi complaining about fan boost being unfair. Not in the way you might think, but in terms of drivers potentially getting lots and lots of people to vote for them, potentially vote for them automatically, uh, and sort of, in inverted commas, rig the system, if you like. Um, I thought that was hilarious. Um, the idea that fan boost is fair in one sense and unfair in the others, when clearly it's just completely unfair to begin with and a silly popularity contest. Um, I really can't get on board with this idea that one type of voting is unfair and another type isn't. Well, if you've ever tried to interview Nicola Prost or Sebastian Buemi and then you see that they've been voted for in fan boost, questions certainly start to uh, to be raised. But it's... It's a, it's a very, it's something the championship are incredibly proud of. They believe it has brought a significant level of fan engagement and interaction to the racing. It's interesting now as we're deep into season two, you're starting to get the drivers speaking out against it in a way they weren't last year. 
I wonder if that's because it's making a bit of a difference. I mean, we certainly in the case of Degrassi, you know, the fan boost that he got in Mexico won in that race. If it hadn't been for that, uh, you know, we could have had a cracking, you know, uh, Harama nineteen eighty one style uh, race. And for me, that was one of the best Formula E races I've seen, and yet one that could have been an awful lot better without fan boost. Well, we'll look, we'll look forward to the the London Formula. E season finale. If you're in the UK, it is live on ITV, and I think tickets are still available for the event as well. If you want to go and check it out, what I would say if you do go and you would like to meet the drivers is get in the queue very, very early for the autograph session because last year it got incredibly busy. Well, the the only other thing we've not touched on, of course, is the Le Mans 24 Hours because that took place on the Baku weekend for reasons that we have hypothesized about previously and it was the Audi that took the win in in the most dramatic of circum it was not the Audi it was the Porsche of course that took the win in the most dramatic of circumstances when the Toyota ground to a halt with four minutes remaining in fairness you'd be forgiven for forgetting that somebody other than the the, uh, Toyota won because they had so much of the attention and they led so much of the race uh, and won yeah the Le Mans 23 hours and 55 minutes um it's really hard to think of a more cruel example of luck uh, in any race, any past Le Mans 24 hours, um, and and so, so harsh for them. They've obviously come close so many times before. They've had problems in the penultimate hour. They've had problems in the final hour. Um, but for it to come down to the final five or six minutes, um, really astonishing. I, you know, I'd, I really thought that they were going to get it done, but uh, very disappointing for them. Um, and allowed Porsche in to extend their massive record of Le Mans victories. It was the highlight of the weekend for me, and this is very tangential, was the, the Eurosport coverage, they interviewed Keanu Reeves on the grid for the race, and often when you see celebrities interviewed, it's an underwhelming experience. Keanu Reeves was genuinely thrilled to be meeting Tom Christensen and was busy chatting away to him, and they had to drag him out of the conversation to do the interview, and it was just great to see somebody who's obviously very well known actually at an event because they loved the event and were thrilled to meet some of the legends of the sport. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the diametric opposite to uh, most of the celebrities you see interviewed in Formula One. Um, but yeah, um, so 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 Porsche won it. Um, and obviously Ford GT, or Ford with the GT and the, and the Chip Ganassi team, not uncontroversially won the GT Pro category. But I think... Uh, one thing that really did strike me was there was so much good sportsmanship and so much good feeling towards Toyota after what happened to them in the LMP1 category. That sense of sportsmanship was somewhat absent in GT Pro, where we had a lot of arguing over the balance of performance, which we touched on in the previous show, um, but then also uh, the way things shook out with uh, Ford and Ferrari being so far ahead, and then uh, it, the end of the race really turning into protest and counter-protest against each other. It's a real pity, and also all that that really starts to do is drive some of the other manufacturers to to consider other avenues to go motor racing. I'd imagine that Aston Martin will be thoroughly fed up with the amount of money they've invested into a programme that just through the regulations meant that they were never really in the running. And particularly when they were up against a car which, against the standard GT convention that you can go out and buy it, isn't actually available to purchase yet. Um, yeah, it wouldn't be difficult to uh, to understand some hard feeling there. Um, for me, the positive story uh, coming out of the GT Pro class uh, was seeing the IndyCar drivers go over there because IndyCar, uh, showing a little more sense than Formula One, uh, made sure that its calendar didn't clash with Le Mans and that meant we had, obviously, Ganassi's 
massive uh, operation heading over there with the with the Ford program, uh, bringing Scott Dixon along with it for his first race uh, at Le Mans. And he did fantastically well uh, getting on the podium and also Sebastian Bourdais as well. Bourdais, a Le Mans native, finally getting to go back there uh, and uh, sharing victory in his Ford GT. The World Endurance Championship next in action on the 24th of July at the Nürburgring, if memory serves correctly. And we can tell you semi-exclusively that that whole race is going to be live on BT Sport over the course of that weekend. So that is worth looking forward to as well. So that was the Le Mans 24 Hours. Lots of racing to look forward to this weekend. We will be back with you in a couple of weeks' time with more from Motorsport Extra. As ever, we would love to hear from you and you can get in touch at Ben Commentator at Keith Collentine. Any questions as well for future episodes, please do get in contact. Until then, from Keith Knight, it's goodbye. <laughs>